Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. My name is Nathan Brush, your host, and this is a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is the wonderful Gav Thompson. You may be familiar with Gav as the founder of GifGaf, or more recently as the host of the Do Lectures podcast. Gav has had a long and interesting career in marketing and advertising, spanning over 25 years. He started in ad agencies in the late 90s, where he worked on the famous Guinness Surfer ad. He then stepped brand side at O2 and also did a stint as the CMO of Paddy Power. Gav is an incredibly thoughtful, insightful and opinionated chap, as is implied by the title of this episode. Please excuse the slightly grainier audio quality here and also be prepared for a spot of bad language. We did have a few technical issues, the joys of recording everything remotely, so thanks to Gav for being a good sport and bearing with it. If you like what you're here, please hit subscribe to stay up to date with the podcast. Here goes. Gav, hello, and uh, thank you so much for finding the time to join me on the podcast. Hello, Nathan. Thank you very much for asking me, and it's a real pleasure to, to be here. So as we always do, we'll get straight to it uh, by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? The wrong that I want to write, Nathan, is corporate bollocks. I've been thinking about this. Yeah, I've been thinking about... That's not the same answer I gave you, actually. I've (laughs) I've rephrased it since we spoke. You did, yeah. You told me corporate bullshit, but I guess they're... Yeah, I've decided bollocks are more, more, more... irritating and i can explain why in a second well yeah since you since we since we were messaging i guess i've had quite a few thoughts about this and i've had quite a few thoughts from from friends and colleagues as well i guess to begin with though how do you define corporate bullshit yourself and or corporate bollocks how how, how do you define similar, what it is? i'll try and explain the difference i think i think corporate bullshit is is sort of is is being disingenuous and frankly been lying so lacking transparency and clarity in your in your presentations to both your customers and you know your shareholders i mean i'm not that's i'm less interested in the shareholder bit but but frankly we all know that lots of businesses aren't very clear and transparent with their shareholders but me as a customer i find corporate bullshitting really really annoying and uh, you know we'll talk about it i mean it just really really winds me up the reason i've extended it to kind of corporate bollocks i think sometimes customers so businesses and brands do do talk bollocks corporate bollocks. They're, they're actually they're not bullshitting they're actually be trying to be honest and clear but they just use language and sort of semantics and semiotics that are bollocks that are just that are just confusing and people don't understand them so there, there's a difference and I think bollocks is a better description. I think kind of bullshitting is a subset of bollocks because I do think bullshitting is, is disingenuous. I think bollocks is is patronising. Um, and I find both of them just ridiculous and I'd like to get rid of them if I could. I'd like to write that wrong. And there's, gosh, there's a lot of it out there. Once you, I mean, I'd do it anyway, but when you, when you kind of start looking at interactions with brands and communications and marketing and advertising, through the lens of are they talking bollocks? There's a lot of bollocks out there. <laughs> well, now on my piece of paper here, I've written bollocks in quite big letters, and then I've kind of put bullshit in kind of smaller letters, as you say, a subset of bollocks. Sure. So I think I'm getting some 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 classic. I guess well, what are the alarm bells or the red flags that ring out to you then when you you see a communication or you see a way a business is acting and you think that's that's bollocks? 
that's bollocks. I think I think a sort of a kind of a dishonesty that that and a kind of lack of transparency and clarity is probably my biggest alarm bell. I mean, the classic, right, which we all can relate to, is the traditional sort of insurance renewal letter, right? And I, I have one here in front of me that's dated like literally a few weeks ago from a business which I'm happy to name and shame actually, um, where. You know, you, it's not just insurance. It's kind of utilities. It used to be telcos. Uh, in this case, it's a very large national breakdown service where they put they hook you in with a lovely sign-up offer, and you go, "That's quite good value." And then the second year, they 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 basically also renew your membership subscription policy, or whatever, with a massive price hike, and they don't they don't front it. So this one. We're not. No one can watch this, but this is from the lovely <laughs> AA, uh, and I'm I'm happy them saying because I think no wonder they're so freaking bankrupt. They treat their customers like this. They, you know, you sign up and then you get a letter going, "Hey, love you, you know, great, brilliant." No mention anywhere that the price is more than doubling in your second yeah. year, and it's it's hidden in the second page in tiny type. They don't and they don't refer it to last year's price. They don't tell you it's a hundred and or a 200 something percent price hike, they just they just drop it in there and you just think, oh great, I'll be renewing at the same rate or or RPI inflation rate and it's hidden. And that is, I mean, it's, it's, it's fucking ridiculous, frankly. I mean, it's been banned in the insurance sector. It's been banned in the telco sector. You legally have to say, you can only put your price up by retail price index inflation in, the, in telcos and in insurance, you have to flag, you paid this much last year uh, you're paying this much this year. Now, the fact that government have to step in and tell brands how to treat their customers is shocking, frankly. The fact that the AA are still doing it, and I'm sure they're not alone. This is just the latest one to kind of cross my desk. It's like, come on, it's just take, you're taking the piss out of your customers. You're assuming that they have, you know, they're busy and that they trust and, and they trust you, which they do. And when you you know, when you behave like that, you just lose all respect, trust, honesty. It's it's so ridiculous. And and the reason they do it is they kind of get away with it, and because people are busy and they do trust you. But the, when you find out, if you bother finding out, and I guess they rely on lots of people, it's it's just 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 fuck them. <laughs> my car can break down. I'll push it. You fuckers. And uh, I I guess that type of business practice. It seems to come from a sort of chasm between people making the decisions at the business and the customers. It's almost like a disconnect so big or so wide that it's almost like, okay, we're, we're almost not seeing the impact of the action, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a total lack of respect for your customers, for one, because you're, you're literally just gouging them. You go, you're, it's a classic sort of bait and switch. You're bringing them in on a offer where you're still going to make margin on I mean, no one's giving away their services for free or for zero margin so you bring them on on probably on a reasonable margin you may have happened to carry that position cost in that first year and then you're assuming because you're taking the piss that they won't know that you've more than doubled the, the price like well how can that be i mean what kind of idiot doesn't spot that well clearly some because it clearly works now it probably works better in in either markets like the aas where they're frankly there's a duopoly and that, you know, people, you know, don't, there's not that many options. There's not, I don't think there's many disruptions in that space, you know, should be. Or it works in high, high inertia markets like 
banking, insurance, where frankly people got better things to do than shop around for insurance. And again, thank goodness for price comparisons, websites, and and um, so so I, I think it's I just think it lacks respect. I think obviously they get away with it, but as we know, and obviously as the founder of Giftgas, I'm very proud of this kind of thing. And there's hundreds and thousands of examples of businesses that disrupt happy markets. It doesn't have to be like that. And guess what? If you are honest with your customers and straight and transparent, you could get just unbelievable amounts of love and loyalty and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, referrals from just being straight and honest. So that's the macro is corporate is bollocks now. And that's bullshit and bollocks. And so that's the kind of that's the macro. There's one example is this sort of bait and switch year two you know and everyone we all you know sky did it for years mm. the telcos did it for years insurers did it years now and one by one they've been legally stopped so so that's kind of one thing and for me that's just not cool frankly um there's a second sort of bit of of just being unclear you know just just oh, often over complicating what's going on again just just layering lots of complexity and nonsense to the point where you know, again, you're just, you're kind of, you're lying. You're sort of saying, we've got this, we've got all this stuff, right? And some of it is meaningless. Some of it is worthless. Some of it is bollocks. Uh, we're going to charge you this amount. And it's just, it's just sort of, again, you're ta- you're lacking, res- you're disrespecting your customers because you're assuming that they want stuff. And some of this stuff is worthless and meaningless and you can get it for free. So that's the second sort of bit of corporate bollocks, which is that sort of, Overcomplicating things yeah. again in order to to sort of overegg your offer again in a way to slightly kind of you know uh, confuse your customers so they go oh this looks good I must sign up and it's and it's nonsense mm. so that's the second bit third bit which the airlines do is the opposite right so they go buy this product for twenty nine quid and you go great I'm going to be able to fly from you know London to Nice for twenty nine quid. And then they do the opposite, which is they layer on a load of stuff that, frankly, is necessary in order to get from London to Nice. So all the, oh, you can buy, you can't actually check in. Or, you you know, you can't carry any luggage. Or you won't be able to get a seat that's not actually out on the end of the wing. And, and you know, the, the old Ryanair story at one point, they were going to charge to use the loo. That's that's another bit of corporate bollocks. Of just It's just dis- dishonest, disingenuous, disrespecting your customers. So that's kind of the third category. Sorry, I'm on a roll now, mate. I mean, you've, no, you know, you've, let, the, you've let the touch paper. Um, and then I guess another one is the sort of using ridiculous language and, and sort of, you know, overcomplicating things, you know, when customers just don't understand what you're talking about. And again, you know, financial services, great for this. They, they, you know, the complexity in taking out a loan, insurance, credit cards, you just, you know, a mortgage. I mean, there's, it's just, you know, you, 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 it's the T's, I guess, just T's and C's and product language that is just complicated. People don't understand it. And again, you need some kind of degree in, in actorism to, to be able to understand, you know, mortgage repayments. And that's just not cool. That's bollocks. Though that sort of, and I've been in those meetings where you sit around the table and someone goes, well, we'll stick it in the T's and C's. We'll stick it on the back page. Or we'll, you know, we'll put it in an appendix. It's like, that's not fair. You know, people, are, customers are busy. They're giving you their money. They trust you. There's an implicit, people are very trusting. 
uh, as implicit mm-hmm. trust. And if you abuse that trust, you know, you just you don't deserve so many customers, frankly. Mm. Uh, and, and this all kind of leads me sort of full circle, I guess, to my gift gas storage, which we can come to later if you're interested. Which was, obviously, we're not disingenuous at all. They're a lovely bunch of folk. I love them. Um, but what was going on in that market at the time was a lot of complexity about, in those days, you know, they still had kind of, you know, different you know, different megabytes were priced differently and you had your bundle and if you went over that, you got horrifically charged. There were still minutes and text price plans and, you know, it wasn't long before that that you had different times of day when you could call and if you call an 07 number, it was cheaper than an 02 number and, 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 you know, the whole thing about data bundles and coverage maps and that that whole level of complexity was, was what was GIFCAP was part of our insight was just let's take all this stuff away and keep it simple. And lots of businesses have done exactly the same with unbelievable success. I guess how was it then to to ask you ask you briefly about that? How how was it um, starting GIFGAF, which was essentially like this more disruptive, this more sort of edgy, youthful brand as part of a much bigger corporation? Like, was there much friction? Uh, yeah, there was a bit. I mean, there was. So the story goes, and it's, it's a while ago now. But I, I had just I joined O2. I was about a year and a bit in. And I was new to the telco market. You know, I was the head of brand strategy at the time. Even I found the process of buying a phone network contract, it, it, you know, confusing, right? And I'm you know, a reasonably smart guy, and I'm working for the company. And there were there were elements of the kind of nature of the bundle. And in those days, there was there was there was still you know there was some you know some things were in bundle, some things were out bundle. You had to choose a, some kind of data allowance. No one still knows what a megabyte or gigabyte is or looks like or feels like or you can't visualize it. So there was and there was still kind of coverage maps and there were there were in those days roaming charges and it was just and, and then you know different there was a different price to kind of get this phone and then obviously one month Samsung were sort of subsidizing the whole thing so you could go it was so complicated. I mean yeah. I think at one point two we did have I think it was like 10,000 tariffs so there was sort of on our data system now obviously there's lots of, there was there was like 10,000 different and you it's like this is really difficult and I as a newbie was looking at it going this is too there's got to be a better way it's got to be a simpler way and it, it coincided with this thing called web 2.0 at the time which was which I guess was community or web enabled communities or web enabled uh, businesses so things like Twitter uh, TripAdvisor uh, Wikipedia, you took the marketing out, you took the call centers out, you took the handset services out, you took the sales people out, so you could offer it for cheaper. And by getting the community to run the business for you, you would get marketing only paid for on, on acquisition uh, for much cheaper than you'd acquire customer and customer service only paid for on successful completion. So that, that was a, meant it was a much leaner business, much potentially more profitable. And then the fourth bit was just, I realized because I was having a midlife crisis, at the time, I just started riding motorbikes, like most fat 40-year-olds, not most, some, me. Uh, and, and in doing so, I realized there was a lot of goodwill out there in these forums where I could go on a web forum, ask a question, literally saying, I'm too fat for my bike. How do I bump up the suspension settings so I don't look like I'm an easy rider? And I'd get really good quality answers from the forum, better answers than I was getting from BMW, who sniggered when I walked in, into their showroom. So you put those all things together, you come up with a thing called gift gaff, which is, which is, as we know, um, was 
the kind of leaner community room based on the principle of mutuality and, and, and it's obviously been very successful and I'm very proud of the team that kind of took my vision and turned it into a business. I, that wasn't my, I can't take credit for that. The, there was a huge rub at the time of, of so the, one of the lines that I had on the brand strategy was it's the mobile phone network for people that hate mobile phone networks, right? Mm. So I walk into the OT boardroom and go, I've got this great idea, guys. It's the mobile phone network. People hate the mobile phone networks. And you can imagine the response. They're like, have you gone nuts? Yeah, a, with these hate mobile phone networks paying your salary, big boy. And B, by <laughs> saying that, we're acknowledging that what we offer is, 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 is not cool. And so you could, so the, so the arguments were, were long and juicy and, uh, and, you know, in the end, thank goodness, they were, you know, my bosses, you know, Ronan Dunn and, and Tim Sefton and, and, and Sally Cowdery were all smart enough to realize that for some people that it's that for people who hate mobile phone networks, right? And that's not everyone. That was, we, we reckon it's about 11% of our potential target audience. So, so once you start doing good old customer segmentation, good old targeting, and you go, it's those other 89%, they're happy, they love us. We were the market leader, we had 25% of the market. They love priority moments, they love tickets to go to, they love all the good stuff, all the, and they actually you know, want to get a shiny new iPhone, but it's or a bad example, a shiny new Samsung that's subsidized by the, so that, let's keep doing that. But for the 11% that don't like it, let's just keep it much more simple, much, cheaper and much clearer and much frankly more transparent and that it once everyone we got into the segmentation that made it much easier albeit there was still different conversations because by definition we as o2 as market leader gift was going to cannibalize that market there was definitely good juicy conversation about cannibalization about the the inference that o2 was was part of the problem and and just kind of culturally there was a sort of you know we we, you know, the thing I was one of the things I was most sort of uh, wary of at the start was acknowledging that we were owned by O2 and owned by Telefonica. I, I mm. wanted to be, I actually wanted to be guilty of what we're talking about, being disingenuous and sort of implying that we were separate. And actually, that was a mistake because that would be hypocritical. And actually, the that one of the questions very early on was, who are these guys? You know, I love nice idea, but are they going to go bust overnight? Are they cowboys? And once we put on the landing page run by O2 or part of the telephone group, that actually kind of helps. And again, customers are clever enough to realize that that's for them and this is for us. Mm. And so, so yeah, so there was some questions about, about how, you know, so one of the original launch ideas, which thank goodness we never did, was going to be getting people, paying our members community to go up to the... <laughs> I don't think I've ever shared this story before. <laughs> going up to the offices of, of the big telcos and doing a Mooney at the front at the front desk and getting the kind of Photoshop shop yeah. Photoshop opportunity of people doing Moonies, and we nearly did. I mean, we very nearly did that, and, and we were going to go up to the the front of O2 and get a guy Mooney in. And thank goodness we didn't. Because a, it was in terribly bad taste and tacky and shit, and, and B. You know that was just it's it just over exaggerating. You know, it was just overcooking the thing. So. Yeah, it was it was it was um, interesting times, and I you know thank goodness for my brilliant bosses, and, and they had the balls to do it. But yeah, there was definitely a there was a bit of grit in there. There was definitely a bit of, uh, and I I think that's why lots of these things never succeed because you sort of somewhere in the mix you have to acknowledge that what the main brand is doing isn't what everyone loves. 
Yeah. So what advice would you give to someone then, I guess, who is trying to disrupt something from the inside almost, who's trying to overcome corporate bollocks where they work because they see a, a better way? What advice would you give to someone like that? Find out who your target audience is. Just vote. If you can find a bunch of people who believe in what you believe in and agree that they, there are some bollocks in the market that they don't like or they don't understand or they don't want to pay for, one of those areas, find who your target audience is and then just laser focus on their needs and wants and hopes and dreams. And frankly, forget about the, the majority of the market. And that, that's, I think, sometimes where a lot of these disruptive startups possibly fail is they, they try to be all things to all people too quickly. And actually to go out there and say, we are talking to you because we think we know that you don't like what currently exists. You have some unmet needs. We have this developed this thing for you. What do you think? And just and literally filter out the noise of possibly the other 99% of the market or 99% of the customer base who are going, oh, I don't like that. That's shit. That's too cheap. Or that's too expensive. Or I'd really like, you know, queuing <laughs> um and, and i think i think that's you know it's sort of, it is kind of startup 101 but it it's often the number of times i've had conversations in in my career where people have good ideas and they the re, they get never get out the gate because someone will say well most people won't like that or that's not how the market behaves or that you know yeah people what they're going to do that You're so so i used to work for yopa um who were who are a kind of disruptive tech estate agency business and again you know i mean it's like similar to purple bricks you know what people are going to show people around the house themselves they're not going to like that well they are if they're going to sell the house for 899 quid not three grand with you know i mean it's sort of it's not for everyone a lot of people want the reassurance of selling the house with an estate agent who they've known for years who's a friend of the community and who will only you only pay him when he sold your house right that's that actually is still the majority of the market. It's probably 90% of the market. There was currently 10% of the market, I think maybe 10 or 11, who go, you know what? I don't really want to pay the state agents two and a half grand. I want to pay them 900 quid and I'll, do, I'll show people around. I'll, you know, write the copy on the, on the ad yeah. and I'll, I'm going to pay up front, which is a bit of a risk, frankly, but I'll do it for that. I'm cash poor or I'm very digitally savvy and I just don't want to do it. And that's, and so that's my advice would be get to your target audience, get your insights straight. And, and you know, back to the initial thing, just try, if, if everyone's sort of mission of every startup is to eradicate corporate bollocks, bring it on. Happy days, right? I mean, yeah. if, you, if you look at all, if you look at a lot of the businesses that have been successful and, you know, all the big, all the big names, you know, Spotify, Uber, Amazon, delivery they, they sort of it's in there they're, they're getting rid of corporate bollocks they're making it simple they're removing mm -hmm. friction points they're being honest about pricing they are offering it cheaper because often they're taking crap out and that's not that's not a bad place to be i sometimes lecture you know entrepreneur classes at, or startup business classes at universities and and you know that's one of my things i say to them because often they go where can we find a good idea how do, how do you disrupt a market and you go well one place to start would be Where's a market full of corporate bollocks that I could help eradicate? Yeah, it's really interesting because one of the things I wrote down was in my notes, I, I wrote down that like, we're obsessed with startups. Like, should people be equally excited still about going to work for a traditional big corporate and the opportunity that presents versus a startup disruptor? 100%. One, 
So uh, it's a really, really good question. I'm really glad you asked it because you're right. We naturally default to start it up. Um, and yeah, most startups fail and, and it's expensive and it takes a long, long, a lot of time and effort. So one of my other other little hats I wear is, is as, you, as you know, I'm, I host the Do Lectures podcast. A little plug there, everyone. The Do Lectures podcast. <laughs> Being amazing despite. Um, sorry, you can edit that out. No, um, that can stay. So, so I, I, the, one of the reasons I, I kind of got into the Do Lectures was a tiny little story, which I think makes this point. So I, I knew David Hyatt, the founder from a long time ago. We used to work at AMB, at advertising agency in the 90s. And we were friends and you know, he went off and set up Howie's, which was a very successful business. He sold it to Timberland. And, and at the same time, him and his wife Claire set up the Do Lectures, which for those of you that don't know, A, listen to the podcast. But it's, it's a sort of, it's, a, it's an inspiration event set in Wales uh, to encourage people to kind of do stuff and do stuff for the common good and, and help make the world better. Um, and, and it does, it's, you know, sometimes people say, is it like Ted? It's the same format as Ted, it's 20 minute lectures, talks, but it has a much more kind of earthy humanity. So it's got a nice undercurrent of kind of doing good. Um, yeah. I went there in 2011 in my role as the, the, I think by then I was like director of brand strategy for, for O2 and I, I was the innovation director for O2. I had some lots of juicy, silly, big job titles. <laughs> and I kind of went there because I knew David and I liked the idea of it. And kind of when I was there, a lot of the other people that, that are, you know, are they working for, in the NGO space or charities or startups, or they are in sustainability. And I, I was, it didn't help that I turned up in a Porsche. So I'll part, I'll let, I'll let you, I'll let, you know, yeah, make your own judgments of, of that. Um, so I, I think I was flagging the fact that I like, may be a bit of a dick as I turned up and then with hindsight, again, not, not a smart idea. Um, and so, and so I, when I was there and again, everyone just goes, yeah, well, you turn up in a Porsche, you dick. There was definitely, I was getting the feeling of why are you here? You're from O2, you know, you're part of the problem. You're, you're big, you're big corporate, you're big, you know, you're big bad. And actually, on the last night, I said, I was with David, and I said, he said, how have you been? I said, I loved it. It's literally been life-changing. But I do feel I'm a kind of, I shouldn't really be here. I'm, I'm, this, I'm part of the problem that all these guys are trying to fix. And he, because he's a genius, said, why don't you come back next year, Gav? Share, share to people, you know, what, what, how you can actually, he called it, we call it being a pirate inside. How you can actually disrupt for the power of good on the inside of a big business. And so, and so that's what I did. And actually when forced to kind of answer that question, I, I, re I was, I realized there were lots of things that I was doing or we, my team were doing at OT, which were making things better. There's lots of ESL stuff we were doing. There was lots of chat stuff we were doing. I'd set up a thing called O2 Learn, which was a teacher, a sharing platform for teachers to share their best video lessons with any kid in the world for free. And again, it was good, great for O2. They, it was good for their brand, good for me, good for the teachers, good for the kids. And there's millions of examples of that. And, and again, I would, it's a really good point. I think when you're on the inside of a business and you can see how you can help eradicate corporate bollocks, crack on. And, mm. you know, crack on. I don't, you know, and you'll have a fight with the lawyers or, or your, your chief legal officer. You may have a fight with your CFO. But, you know, it's a fight often worth having. Um, because, again, most of these... Most, in the, in the, yeah, just most businesses that are customer-centric, that have high NPS scores, that have high uh, referral scores that people love and stay with and frankly make them more profitable. I, if there was a measure of 
corporate, you know, corporate CPQ or CBQ corporate <laughs> bullshit quotient. I mean, I'm happy to try and set that up if anyone wants to help me with that. Um, I think they would all the good ones would have a low CBQ. I, I wanted to ask you a bit as well, Gav, you spent some time at Paddy Power. So interesting, we, we had a talk from, I don't know whether your paths would have crossed at Paddy Power. We had a talk from a guy called Lee Price in one of our sort of internal sessions. I think he might have joined just after you left. Uh, but his his title until he left recently was head of mischief. Uh, oh, yeah, and- yeah, yeah. I had a chap called Harry Dromey who was worked for me, who was head of mischief. It was genius. Yeah, it was, exactly, yeah. Because I, I guess Paddy Power, when I think about corporate bollocks, they kind of come across as the opposite to a lot of that, I guess. A very irreverent, very brave yeah. uh, voice. Like, how did you navigate what you were trying to achieve when you worked there with the, with the board and everything like that? That's a really good question. I mean, you know, it, it helped that one of the founders, Stuart Kenny, was the embodiment of anti-corporate bollocks. Right? He, he, he's obviously Irish. Obviously, it was a bookie himself. But when you meet him, I remember going to the interview in Dublin, and I was—I think I was featured that. He turns out he's you know a bit older than than me, in just sort of scrappy jeans, scrappy t-shirt, scrappy scrappy trainers, and the guy's worth tens of millions, you know, if not more, having floated the business and this, you know, very successful. And he just sort of rocked up, and his first question—brilliant! This first question was how, on a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? <laughs> you go right. This, we're going to have this kind of conversation, I was sure. And 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 his premise for my role, which was endorsed by my CEO Andy McHugh, was if you're not scaring the board and you're not and the the chief legal officer and the company secretary aren't aren't you know messaging you all day and night, you're not doing your job properly. And that was that genuinely. I mean, that I could go off on this whole long story about about a ad we did for Rolf, with Rolf Harris in it, which I won't, but. You can infer it's got Rolf Harris in it. He was currently in jail, and and the fact that we got this close to running an ad for the Ashes in whenever the Ashes were that year, 2016 or something, 2015, uh, featuring Rolf Harris, it just gives you an idea of their attitude to kind of risk and their attitude to fuck the corporate bollocks. And that yeah, you know, it was so refreshing in a very regulated industry, obviously for good reason, gambling. Um, that they and it came from the founder and it came from Andy McHugh, you know, who, who you know he he was the CEO. He was he was he used to challenge me. I'd show him stuff, you know, I'd show the latest ideas. Go, no, that's not that's not risky enough, or that's not dangerous. Enough. That's not dangerous. Not my word. That's not uh, that's not going to push the boundaries enough. That's irreverent was our word. We didn't want to be, you know, dickheads, but it was kind of be relevant. Irreverence was our sort of brand DNA, and. It was just really refreshing, and, and you know, he, I, we had, um, we had a risk officer, obviously, because we lost in compliance, and we had a, a chief kind of legal counsel, uh, and a, and the CFO, and and you know, you 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 could, yeah, you can imagine the conversations. But yeah, I mean, they, it was refreshing, and and actually, you know, I went from kind of gift gaff to to, to um, Paddy Power to Yopa, which were all had a kind of theme of, of highly disruptive. Very kind of customer centric and very low corporate bollocks quotient CBQ. So, um, so and, and actually, most recently, Johnny Bowden, um, my most recent boss, you know, is unbelievably irreverent chap. You know, just sort, just just does his thing. Has a fantastic business. Knows that for a lot, some people think he's a bit of a posh twat. Doesn't care. You know, uh, it's it's quite refreshing to work for 
businesses and founders where they know what they're about, they know what the customers want, and there's just a lovely good line of sight between what we do and our customers and the less crap and bullshit and lies we t- we talk the better. It's so refreshing. And I think mm-hmm. I think yeah, my, my sort of mantra on this for anyone working in business is just go through your customer journeys, go through your communications, go through your marketing, go through your propositions. And just, just with that kind of, how do we make it less bollocksy, less bullshitty, less dishonest? Um, it, it's a really quite powerful sort of role to play, actually. Um, and not everyone will be your friend, but your customers will thank you for it in the end. Yeah, it seems like you kind of did the best job at this when you were, as you say, in those sort of client side, brand side roles. And I guess another thing I, I was kind of jotting down in the run up to this was like this whole agency versus client side debate, like, who's driving the uh, change, who's driving the, the the disruption. And then I was kind of thinking, there's a lot of sort of agency bollocks as well. There's these stereotypes which pervade, right, of like, oh, if your agency side, you're more innovative, faster moving, you've got the clever ideas, more creative. And if your brand side, it's it's not going to be as exciting. It's a bit bit slower, a bit more corporate. What was it like when you made that 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 change and what's your sort of reflection on the whole on the whole thing now? It's a really good question. Look, there, there was a stereotype when I was a lad at Abbott Mead in the 90s. I was a graduate and a account director, whatever. And there was this kind of there was a sort of stereotype that our clients they are full of corporate bollocks, right? They, they are sort of, you know, it's all kind of boring and it's a bit staid. And and to some extent, I think that that caricature of stereotype probably is true. I mean, I, I joined Client World when I was 35, I think, 2007. Yeah, 36. Um, and and I think, you know, my advice to, to anyone and I is sort of, you know, if you could, your first 10, 12, 15 years do agency because, A, it's, more fun because you're in a creative environment you're less restricted by you know quarterly you know financial results to the to the either your shareholders or your vc or your or to the or to the to the markets you you are working in a kind of you know in those days i was you know old school advertising amv and tbwa whatever you're working in a creative industry where frankly your currency is creativity and you know there's nothing more exciting than a brilliant creative idea to kind of get behind and get you out of bed in the morning and, and you know in those days again you know it's probably not that i used to go off on shoots and and you know hang around with you know lots of kind of cool creative people and it was amazing yeah i think i lived in the glory days of advertising which don't exist anymore mm. you know maybe more to pity but the world's moved on i i, I guess so I, I think there was less corporate bollocks in advertising world agency world in i you know i left in 2007 and, and we also had my own startup with some colleagues and it was amazing fun you know that that moment where you're just you're doing your thing you're selling ideas you're watching ideas inspire customers and you're watching the inspiration of those customers turn into shareholder value and turn into commercial results that that for me still is kind of my kind of sweet spot in my career where kind of creativity meets commerce and you know bingo i think I think it is. I think there is a transition to, to when you get into a corporate role or client side. The thing that you are good at, and, and in my case, you know, the creative ideas, you know, persuasive, persuasive, interruptive, creative ideas, whatever, however you want to define what advertising is, is less of a feature. It's just it's a tool. It's one of many tools that, that marketers use to drive the right results. And it goes from being, you know, the cliche goes from 100% of your life to sort of 10% of your life. It is true. 
and the rest of it, it can be incredibly sort of dull. You know, there are lots and lots of meetings, uh, there's lots of PowerPoint, there's lots of Excel, there's lots of, there's just lots of process and, you know, guff, frankly, that goes with big organisations, big organisations that people like me, agents people just go, really? I guess a, a, another sort of related thing I wanted to ask you, I, I, I guess when you first said that this one, this was going to be the subject of the of the discussion, I kind of thought, you know what? I don't feel like I've ever experienced much corporate bullshit in my like job. I've obviously experienced what you're talking about from airlines or phone companies yeah. or insurance companies, um, but I couldn't really think of much I'd experienced in my job. Like I've only ever worked, I've worked in three different agencies. And overall, yeah, not experienced too much bollocks. So I thought, well, why don't I ask the company? And I just posted this on Slack yesterday. I said, I'm looking for stories of corporate bollocks that, that people have experienced because I'm speaking to, speaking to Gav tomorrow. And it's the biggest thread I've ever seen pop up on ah. our Slack. There's about yeah. sort of 80 or 90 messages now in this big, long thread. Please and I guess- it onto me. I want to have a look. Yeah, I, I will do. I might have to censor out certain elements of it. But I guess so much of it came back to the way that people treated by former employers. Yeah. And some of it is 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 amazing. There's there's so much stuff in there about like presenteeism, people saying, Oh, I got told that I need to stay a bit after half five so it doesn't send the message to the rest of the people on my floor that you can just get up and go when the day is finished. People saying I had to travel three hours longer on a train journey because it was going to cost 30 more pounds to go on a direct train. People saying I got a promotion but didn't get a pay rise because we wanted me to appear more senior to the client that we were working with. But so much stuff. I was like, oh my God, I feel very fortunate that I didn't really have too much to add to the list. But I guess workplace culture is this huge topic now that is getting more and more attention. It's like, what's your view on how our relationship with work and our employees is hopefully going to improve in, I guess, in the future? It's a really good question. And again, I mean, I think I've been lucky in my employers. Uh, you know, I've worked some really, really good agency. Abbott Vickers back in the day was just the best place to work as a, as a, as a trainee because they treated you incredibly well. And then you know, I've been really, I don't think I've ever really experienced employee corporate products, right? I mean, but I know obviously it exists. Uh, and, and again, I, I, we had O2, we had a, we had a rule because my, my department used to look after internal comms. Um, and it started off as a, as a customer rule to our customer facing guys, which was uh, no stupid rules. So again, myself and Sarah Davis, who was my sort of, partner in crime in in the kind of customer division we kind of went through the customer journey and did what we talked about you know where are the stupid rules and 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 then interesting we then we kind of evolved that into with the internal comms guys to, to sort of and we had a we had a kind of anonymous sort of box I mean, it was old school where you literally put your piece of paper in which was what's the stupid rule within in our team or within the, the division of you know employee stupid rule and there were, it would have been things like that, you know. There was, I mean, I don't want to be rude about my about my old employer, Telefonica, because again, they're lovely people. They had a they had, they, were, they had a couple of stupid rules. One was when you got to a certain level of directorship, you were given an outside office with a window. So you, okay. and, and, you know, and it, it was sort of nuts, right? So you'd be, you'd have one office without a window, and then you had a, a office with a window, and that's because you went up a level. Mm -hmm. and, the, and then they had a they had a kind of different restaurant 
different. I mean, it was kind of quite old school. But then in those days, they used to, you could smoke cigars in the restaurant and drink red wine. So probably not a good example. But I mean, I think um, what are the stupid rules? The stupid rules bring a bullet up over time. They, they, you know, again, at AMV, you know, very light on super rules. They had one super rule, which was, you know, if you went, if you got on the board, right? If you went from being a can director to being a board can director, you were given your own TV. That was yeah. it. Nice. I mean, that's just a super rule, and that that's kind of corporate bollocks. And there was one example of someone who I won't name. But anyone listening here to this from AMV uh, will know who I'm talking about. He he got demoted <laughs> from board candidates to candidates because he he did something wrong. He misbehaved, and the the kind of the maintenance guy came in on the Monday morning and took his TV away. It was a beautiful moment. He kind of walked through the office carrying his TV. But, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I. I I think it's, I think look, they, you know, you look at the positives that come out of the pandemic, uh, and we're not obviously out of it yet. But I think the, the 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 forcing people to be much more kind of innovative and and you know using Zoom, using the technology, not having to go to work just to show your face, not having presenteeism, having to be honest about I've got other responsibilities in my life. I've got childcare. I've got to look after my parents. I've got to look after there's people in my house who are sick. I've got COVID. That level of kind of honesty and frankly dismantling bullshit mm. can only be a good thing and again who knows what we're going to be like in the future but but from a from a employee employer work dynamic i i think you know I, yeah it can only be a good thing from a from a corporate bullshit point of view um albeit who did we see the other day did it goldman sachs yeah the yeah. uh who, who announced the ceo last a couple of weeks ago that what was his expression anyway about about working from home, you know. He was basically like, we need everyone back in the office or something along those It was something like that, but he used an expression that I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't great. And I read that going, I mean, A, there's, in a million years, Goldman Sachs would never employ somebody like me. But it was like, that feels like it could be more footballers. Gab, I'm, I'm conscious of time, so I want to I wrap up by asking you three final questions. Um, sure. Firstly, what, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? It's a great question. I, I used to believe that trying to be right was a reasonable ambition in life. And I now believe that doing the right thing is a much more worthwhile objective. So the journey from trying to be right to doing the right thing is, is one, and I'm by no means completed on that journey. But I, de I definitely used to spend a lot of my life trying to be right. Uh, both in, in, you know, work, in my personal life, in, 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 in my relationships, in, in marriage. And I think, and I, you know, I, I, it's a really good thing to kind of carry around now where, particularly when you're arguing, oftentimes people are arguing because they want to be right. They just want to be right. I want to, I want to prove that I'm right. I don't like your point of view. I'm going to assert myself and my argument so hard because I think I'm right. And actually just, being right is not that's not that's not cool that's not objective doing mm. the right thing sometimes you know is a much better objective and it, it can often mean that you you have to acknowledge that either you're wrong or you don't you you're, you agree to disagree you you know you acknowledging that a lovely thing to say when you have an argument with somebody is just go you may be right and then just yeah. sort of stop talking you know and and, and I, again i don't we've segue from corporate bollocks to me sounding like i'm some kind of you know motivational speaker and preacher and it's not I do, I do, they are, they are actually t tied up, right? They're, they're, there are, there's a co correlation there somewhere. And I do, um, and maybe it's because I've been divorced. Maybe it's because I had cancer. Maybe it's because I've got a three-year-old kid who, who keeps me on my toes now. 
but I think I think yeah, I, I it's a very agency thing, or it certainly was for me in my twenties, and uh, just be be right and you know prove the client wrong or get the sale or and and actually it's it's just trying to do the right thing. I like that a lot. Um, secondly, Gav, if if this wasn't your mission, trying to trying to dismantle and uh, all things corporate bollocks and bullshit, what would be? Such a tough question, man. And I said to you at the beginning, I haven't got an answer for this, and I sort of don't. I, I guess I, I, the only thing I can sort of point to is I did start off, I did train to be a primary school teacher um, when I was at uni. I, I, I originally wanted to be an actor, and I, I did a drama and education degree. I don't think there's that many of those around. And the idea was, was I was going to be an actor or a director, and then on the side I was going to be a qualified teacher, and I would teach to fill in the space when I wasn't acting which in my case would have been the whole time. I'd have been a permanent teacher if <laughs> I was not very good at acting. And I guess the, the, the thing I really enjoy is teaching. I, I, I didn't do it for long. You know, you end up doing a, you end up with the term, terms of teaching practice, 12 weeks. Of, and you get your own class. And the, I had 11-year-olds. It was fabulous. That kind of te- teaching young people stuff and not just the didactic stuff, not just the you must learn, da, da, da. but when you kind of get into just concepts and mm. concepts of history and the concepts of evolution and the concepts of different types of religion, it's so rewarding. And the kids are very un- unfiltered and uncynical. And I-, I really enjoy teaching kids. I mean, unfortunately, when you have a penchant for buying stupid cars like I did, I don't anymore, still-ish, you know, the- you can't fund a stupid car habit on a teacher's salary, sadly. But I, I really love teaching kids and I love being a dad. I've got three kids now and I, it's possibly the most rewarding thing I do. So, so big up for teachers. Um, yeah, it's amazing. So yeah, a t- teaching would be my, my, if I run the lottery, I'd have probably tried to do some more teaching. And, and finally, Gav, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further book club to read, what would it be? Yeah, I, I mean, there's lots. I, I love this little thing. It's, you're not, no one can see this. It's quite small. So this is, this is a biotech called Tony Che, H-F-I-E-H. He was the founder of Zappos. Um, the book is called Delivering Happiness, uh, A Path to Profits, Passion and Purpose. And I guess for those of you that don't know the story of Zappos or Tony Che, I think I've pronounced that correctly. The Zappos was, was, was a business founded on what we've just talked about, literally just doing the right thing by customers, eradicate the corporate bollocks and just making customers happy. And it's such a, what they did, they just sold shoes online. It's not very sexy, but they just did it in a way that with passion and love and, and honesty. Uh, and it's just, it's a really inspiring book. They sold to Amazon in 2009 for 1.2 billion, which I guess is peanuts in today's world of, of, of sales but at the time it was quite a big deal actually and Amazon sort of acquired them I think they're still going but it's just it, it's a really nice story of trying to do something that people said you can't do that you can't sell shoes online it's impossible you, you know people need to try them on you carry too much stock and inventory you know, it's literally you, you can't do it and not only did he do it but he did it in a way that really the loyalty and NPS these guys have I think still do he, he's now I mean he's one of my heroes they, they now run sort of training training courses in how to delight customers, and particularly in today's DTC world, you know, direct-to-consumer kind of digital world. It's just really inspiring, and because it was 15 years old ago, it's even more kind of inspiring because it's sort mm. of just so ahead of its time. Um, 
And it's it's quite a good one. I mean, genuinely, it's not. It's a short book. It's two hundred and forty odd pages. Delivering Happiness, Tony Trey, the story of Zappos. Um, I, I love it actually. And it, what's quite nice about it, it's not when people read it. So it's not it's not like you're reading out, you know, a, a, a sort of you know a a, a, a stat or a, a story from all these books that we've all read. Yeah. Um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell or, or Jim Collins or whatever. It's it's a sort of you know, it's 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 good. So that's my book, and I would encourage people to read it. Cool, thank you. Or very you much. can read marketing ex- excerpts from experts, which is another book. I have that, you know. Yeah, ramblings of, of, of me and Rory, and, and yeah, it's a good book. Sadly, it was a lovely book done for the NHS for in COVID. I think it's now out of print, so it's oh, about to become a museum piece. But it's good. It's, it's good. No, not, have... Obviously, not nothing to do with me. Rory, Rory is amazing in it, as as is lots of people. I've got a copy. Um, Good Kath, man. Thank you so much for for taking the time. I think there's there's tons of stuff there for people to take away and, and hopefully have a think about how they might be able to uh, remove a little bit of corporate bollocks from their um, from the world. And if anyone listening wants to join me in setting up the Institute for Eradication of Corporate Bollocks, we have to think of some acronym on that. We're measured by the CBQ, the Corporate Bollocks Question. Please, please yeah. reach out to me. Recruiting um, now. Nathan, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you. I've really enjoyed the podcast and uh, I really appreciate you, uh, you asking me. Thanks. There we have it. Thank you for listening to the very end. Plenty to think about there. Thanks to Gav for joining me. Do go and check out the Do Lectures podcast. Gav is doing a fantastic job with that. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. Do drop me a review in your podcast app. Please connect with me on LinkedIn. My name is Nathan Brush or drop me an email. It's podcast at journeyfurther.com. And finally, I'd love for you to join a very special community we run here at Journey Further. It's called the Journey Further Book Club. We share bite-sized insight from the best business books, all aimed at helping you progress in both your professional and your personal life. We're actually reading one of the Do Lectures books this month, Do Build, How to Make and Lead a Business the World Needs by Alan Moore. So just head to journeyfurther.com or click the link in the show notes to find out how you can sign up for free. I'll see you soon.